Good evening. This is attorney Vincent Davis. You're on the radio with Divorce and Family Law Talk Radio Show. The effects of divorce, especially when the divorce involves children, last for a lifetime, usually longer than the divorce itself. The consequences of marital dissolution can affect all members of the family and can last a lifetime itself. You've got questions, we've got answers. Family law legal experts answer your questions about divorce, kids, money, property, custody, spousal support, and much more. I'm attorney Vince Davis, and we are joined with our co-host, attorney Daniel Nilton. Daniel is a expert in family law and has been practicing about 35 years uh, in the field of family law. And I'm going to uh, bring him on right now. Let me try again. Good evening, Daniel. Yes. Daniel? Uh, this is Dan Knowlton. Yes, Good evening. can you hear me? We're yes, we're having some technical difficulties. Sorry about that. Oh, no problem. How are you this evening? Very good. Pleasure to be with you. Good. Daniel, we usually have a list of questions uh, where we answer from people that uh, email us questions. This evening we have a caller um, who's calling in, I think, to ask a question. So let's take that caller first before we get to our weekly question and answer session, okay? Okay, very good. Good evening. I'm taking a call from area code 619, ending in 65. You're on the radio with attorneys Vince Davis and Daniel Nelton. Hello. Hello. Daniel, I think uh, that maybe they were just calling in to listen. Okay, maybe so. Uh, no problem. Shall so, we go ahead with the questions? So let's get. Yeah, let's get straight to our questions. Okay, sounds great. Um, we have first question. I have two minor children that have visitation rights with me weekly. If I am deciding to move to a different county in California, do I have to get permission from my ex-spouse? Vince, would you like me to take that? or? Sure, go ahead. Can you hear me? Okay, well, the, the first question um, is of the extent of the visitation rights that the uh, questioner has. Um, if we're talking about a uh, oh a standard 20% type visitation rights, and a, a standard 20% uh, regimen would be something similar to every other weekend, say from um, you know a usual uh, Friday at six o'clock to Sunday evening at six o'clock, uh, with um, alternating holidays and some time in the summer. That's a typical 20% um, time share. And 20% of the uh, to the visiting spouse and 80% to the custodial spouse. Uh, in that kind of situation, 
my opinion is that no, you don't have to uh, get court permission or from or permission from your ex-spouse to move to a different county. Uh, however, you may have some complications about uh, where that visitation will be occurring and who is going to be paying for the transportation or how you'll be uh, splitting up the transportation. Um, you know, when we're uh, making orders about uh, who's going to be transporting the children for visitation, oftentimes we'll either have it that the, uh, the most standard probably is that the receiving parent uh, provides the transportation, that is the parent picking up the children drives there, and then the parent uh, retrieving them drives to pick them up. Um, so those are the kind of questions that have, happen in a standard uh, 20%. But when you start getting above, say, a 28% or 30% visitation regimen, you know, when you have the kids, say, 30% of the time, then everything changes because then suddenly we're uh, looking at a joint physical custody sharing arrangement. And when we have that kind of an arrangement, then um, we have the impact of several cases that come into play, uh, the Burgess case and the La Mouche case. And then at that time, you do have to have uh, one of several things occur before you can change the resident of the child uh, to another location. And it isn't necessarily even to another county. It can be just uh, another location 20 or 30 miles away from the original location. Uh, the most famous case was just a move about 30 miles away. So in that kind of situation where you've got a 30% arrangement, uh, there are certain things that have to be done. At, at a minimum, you'd have to give at least a 60-day uh, written notice to the other spouse that you intend to move, um, and that would have to be done by certified return receipt requested mail. That's the, the easiest way to do it. Um, second to that would be to get a written agreement from your spouse allowing you to do that. And, of course, you could take that written agreement and convert that into a, a stipulation and have a judge sign it, making it a court order, <clears throat> which is nice. That's a good way to do it. The third way, of course, is that you can file for a, a court order and that uh, is called a request for order, an RFO, request for order, a fancy word for just a, a motion in a divorce or a, a separation case. And um, to get that court order, uh, you're doing the procedure called a move-away procedure. And that move-away procedure has several requirements. And the first is that the court has to set a, uh, a mediation or a counseling session with uh, court employees uh, to give the parties a chance to settle this thing um, without having to go all the way through the court procedure. And then after that mediation session is done, say through Family Court Services or FCS, then after that, uh, the court would hear the matter and it could be heard on uh, the papers if the attorneys agree or if the attorneys wanted oral testimony. Uh, the the uh, court is inclined to grant oral testimony in most of those situations where a substantial move away is occurring. So taking this question at face value, if it's just a standard 20% type visitation right, I don't think it's necessary to get court permission uh, to move. Um, but if it's more than about 28%, I'd say anything above 25%, you probably ought to at least give 
the written uh, certified notice, uh, excuse me, a notice by certified return receipt requested, or get the agreement of the other spouse, or file a uh, an RFO for a move away. Vince, do you have anything to add to that? Well, you know, um, for purposes of uh, uh, tweeting about this, it would be hashtag move away. And there's a, a move away analysis that the Supreme Court of California has given us. So, Dan, let me let me give you a a hypothetical fact situation. Let's say that uh, the parties are not married. There is a four-year-old child, and mom wants to move away with the child from California to North Carolina to attend college. What do you yeah. think? Uh, and, and and the father uh, does not agree with that move away. Give us the analysis that the court would go through, and then tell me what you would do if you were the mother, and then we'll talk about the father, to try to prevail in this case and get the court order either granted or denied. Well, in that situation, the, the critical question is what has the history of the uh, time sharing or the child sharing been with the mother? Um, whether she's married or not is pretty much irrelevant uh, to custody, uh, custody moveaways or child custody matters, for that matter. Um, so, uh, if she has been the primary parent, the primary caretaker of the children or the, the four-year-old um, for an appreciable period of time, uh, then she does have to have court permission, as I've discussed in the previous question. Um, but again, that will depend on the percentages of timeshare that she has had. Now, <clears throat> if she has is clearly the um, has physical custody of the four-year-old and has had that as the status quo for some time, then the case of Burgess kicks in. And uh, Burgess was a case before the California Supreme Court, where the court decided that if the uh, the parent with primary physical custody wanted to move away to another location, if they were doing it for reasons other than to interfere with the other spouse's visitation rights, that is, if they did it in good faith, or if the other spouse couldn't show that they were doing it just to frustrate that spouse, then there's a presumptive right that that parent has the right to move. Now, this could be challenged uh, by the, um, the visitation parent it could be challenged that it's not in good faith. It could be challenged that it was done just to uh, frustrate that parent. Um, and if that's the case, then the presumption would not go into place. And then we'd be looking at measuring whether the move away would be allowed on the best interest of the child test. So best interest of the child is the basic test. <clears throat> now, um, a couple years after the Burgess case was handed down, some um, new statutes went into place, and uh, the Supreme Court looked again at this question of moving away in the La Mouche case. And in the La Mouche case, the court went to various factors to consider uh, before uh, making a decision as to whether a move away would be allowed, a move away of a, an appreciable distance. So 
those questions would be such things as how far is the move? Um, uh, what effect will this have on the children to move? Um, how does it how do how does it impact the different children and the relationship between the different children? What is the psychological tie that the child has to the mother? What's the psychological tie and bond that the child has to the father? Now, this father, if the move away is granted, this father is not going to see the child as frequently as as he has in the past. A four-year-old. Um, may have a harder time if dad's been very active visiting the child a lot. Uh, a four-year-old may have a harder time being away from dad uh, appreciable periods of time or having a harder time adjusting if he's bonded a lot to dad, even though mom has primary custody. So those are the questions that the court would be considering under the La Mouche uh, factors. Um, so really it's the history of the relationship of who's had primary physical custody and the impact on the children that the court is mainly concerned with. Very good, very good analysis, Dan. Um, let's go to our second question. Okay, <clears throat> over the holiday weekend, I went to Vegas and had a wedding. How can I get the marriage voided? Apparently it didn't go well. How can I get my marriage voided? Does the other parent, or I'm sorry, does the other person have to be involved in the process of getting the marriage voided? <clears throat> Shall I begin this one? Huh. Yeah, go ahead. Well, uh, this is the area of annulments or nullities. Just a different expression for the same thing. Null nullities. And uh, the state law allows uh, annulments to be granted in certain situations, but not in all. You don't have a right to an annulment just because you want one. Uh, the uh, statutes, the laws, the code, requires that certain grounds have to be proven to the court before the court will allow a marriage to be annulled. Now, the reason that people sometimes would like an annulment is because after an annulment is granted, the the um, the marriage is determined to be a non-entity. It's like you're not you're never married. It's just reversing, erasing that marriage altogether. You could say in good faith, "I've never been married." After you've gone through an annulment, um, but the grounds have to be proven to the court, and uh, that's done early on in these cases, oftentimes. Um, we should cover some of the grounds just so our listeners can get an idea of this. Uh, some of the most obvious grounds are if um, the marriage is incestuous, that is, if you've married to too close of a relative, uh, then it would be a void marriage. And if uh, the most clear case, of course, is if uh, a person marries and they haven't um, gotten a divorce or an annulment from their prior existing marriage. So if you marry again and you're still married, uh, then the second marriage is a matter is void as a matter of law. It's not voidable as such. It's void. <clears throat> but, of course, you have to take an action to have that recognized and, and voided in that kind of a situation. Uh, now, that can happen by mistake, and I've seen it happen a number of times, where people thought that, they had, that their prior divorce was completed, but actually their prior divorce was not completed. 
And in that kind of a situation, um, they can go to court and ask that the uh, that the marriage be uh, held annulled. Um, other grounds are, for example, um, if you are forced to marry someone, someone held a gun to your head, for example, um, or if someone lied to you about a serious matter that goes to the core of the marriage, that can be grounds for an annulment as well. And another ground, of course, is if you have an unsound mind, if um, because of age or mental condition or something like that, you really don't know what you're doing. You don't know the impact of what you're doing uh, by getting married. Now, that that gives uh, rise to the question we've read. I went to Vegas and had a wedding. Um, we don't know what happened in Vegas. We don't know the reason why the person wants to get their marriage voided. But let's assume that they went to Vegas and partied a little too long and a little too late and went to the Elvis Chapel and uh, the Dixie Cups played, and they decided to go through a procedure that they can't even remember anymore called a wedding. That can happen. And in that kind of a situation, I would plead to the court that that was a situation of an unsound mind, that they really didn't know what they were doing, and uh, as a result, they, they should have an annulment. There's an interesting distinction about these grounds that I've just covered and that is some of them give rise to voidable marriage, and some of them give rise, as I mentioned, to avoid marriage. And the uh, importance is as follows. If you have a void marriage, then it can be rendered void at any time just by applying to the court. If it's a voidable marriage, for example, um, if you allege that you are defrauded into the marriage, that would would be the type of marriage that could be voidable. Or if you thought um, you had an unsound mind because you drank too much or were under drugs or something, that could be voidable. The importance of a voidable marriage is that there is a statute of limitations that is critical. If you have engaged in a voidable marriage and you don't file for a, a, an annulment within one year, you have then waived the grounds of the voidability. So um, all you divorce lawyers out there who don't know this particular rule, please pay attention. Uh, you can't let that one year go by, or you may have waived your client's um, statute of limitations on voidable marriage. And here's one reason why this could be very critical from a lawyer's point of view about uh, whether a, a marriage um, is void or voidable and whether you can get an annulment. <clears throat> if you are the innocent party in a voidable marriage, let's assume, for example, that a man, we'll make him the bad guy this time, a man uh, knows that he's married in another state but doesn't want to get uh, a divorce, or maybe he wants the idea of having two wives, or for whatever reason, he goes ahead and marries uh, the second lady. Maybe he's just fallen in love and... Um, anyway, he marries a second lady knowing he's still married. The the lady in that case is the innocent spouse, an innocent party, if he, she hasn't been told about it, if he's tricked her about that, and he is not an innocent party. And if you are an innocent party in that kind of situation, um, you have the normal rights that you would have in a divorce. You would have the right to spousal support, to attorney's fees, 
and to community property. But if the court determines that you are not innocent, that you are the guilty party in um, avoidable marriage, then you could be deprived of spousal support rights. You could be deprived of getting any spousal support after the um, marriage is held voidable. You could be deprived of attorney's fees uh, for the for doing the legal proceeding. And you could also be deprived of the accrual of community property interests in the property. So that makes it very critical in some cases that you found, or you're found to be the innocent spouse and not the guilty spouse in an annulment. Now I've gone on for a bit long here. Vince, I'm sure you have some thoughts. No, I was just listening to that analysis. Um, for our social media, it will be pound annulment or pound nullity. And um, it, it's always a very interesting case and interesting analysis. You don't come across, or I personally don't come across these cases frequently, maybe one or two a year. How about you, Dan? It's about the same. They're unusual. And, uh, uh, yeah, they're they're very unusual. And I think most of the time when they come up, they've come up because of uh, cases where people have not actually gone through the divorce procedure properly. Some people, uh, being new to law or um, not well-educated or experienced in this, file their divorce, for example, and they think just by filing the divorce that the divorce is done, that the case is done. Far from it. California law requires that after you file the divorce, at least six months have to go by before the divorce can even be granted. Plus, you know, you have to either have a judicial uh, decree of judgment or you have to have a marital settlement agreement that is approved by a judge. So if you haven't gone through that procedure and you've remarried, you've made a big mistake. On some of those cases, you can go back, on the right kind of case, you can go back and ask the court to do a procedure called, and I'm going to use some fancy Latin words here that are still used in the courts, nunc pro tunc, which translates to be now for then. You can do a nunc pro tunc in some cases and have the um, the decree um, of the earlier divorce granted earlier, hopefully before you remarried, if it's properly done and if you qualify for it. Uh, in a lot of cases, what has to be done is you have to wrap up the first divorce and then come back and remarry. Um, so it is, it's unusual. Hey, Dan, I have a, uh, a question that I want to pose, and we're going to treat this as question number number three. I'm going to give you a factual situation, and uh, I want you to give me your analysis, okay? Okay. This is an actual situation that I, uh, that I uh, came across uh, very recently in our office. Um, woman comes in, she has two children with father, and she tells me that several years ago, they went through a formal wedding procedure. And she tells me that she believed that they were married. Uh, they have subsequently have two children. Um, they hold themselves out to the world that they are a husband and wife. 
there's problems in the marriage. Um, mom moves out uh, of the home with the two children. And the father tells the mother, well, you know what? We were never married. Uh, the person that married us, who was a relative of the father's, wasn't a, a minister, and they never took out a um, a license, a marriage license. During the marriage, again, the the, the mother thought that she was the um, was the wife of the legal wife, and as such, the 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 mother helped the father build a substantial. Uh, professional business, professional services business. And when they split up, father tells mother, basically, um, ha-ha, you know, we were never married, so you're not entitled to anything. And then on top of that, while she was working in the business, she was never paid a wage or a salary. Now, we're not going to get into the wage and hour claim that she may have as an employee, but let's go back to the issue of quasi-community property, community property, putative spouse. Do an analysis on that for us, would you please? Sure. Um, a putative spouse is what we're, what I've been calling an innocent spouse. And that is a party who believes that, in good faith, that they are a legal spouse. And the court, the California Supreme Court, has recently made a distinction between um, uh, um, whether someone uh, can qualify as a putative or an innocent spouse of just having a subjective good faith versus an objective good faith. And the Supreme Court said subjective good faith can be enough. To, uh, to establish yourself as a putative spouse, I'll say an innocent spouse, in this kind of a situation. Um, uh, as far as quasi-community property, um, quasi-community property, of course, refers to property brought from out of state, but there's a term that is used in, in, uh, in annulments called quasi-marital property which is exactly right in this situation, quasi-marital property, because the accumulation of the assets that these parties made during the marriage, the business growing, for example, um, the, um, any investments that they may have made or the earnings they may have ha uh, accumulated during the marriage, that's all quasi-marital property if there's a putative spouse. And in this case, by the hypothetical, um, mom was the innocent party. Uh, Dad uh, apparently knew that there was no license taken out or that the minister was unqualified, um, that kind of thing. So Dad is, an, is not the innocent spouse. Now, the way this plays out in this particular case or would play out in a case like this is that Mom would be able to get, normally she'd be able to get spousal support as though she had been married. And she'll be able to get community property recognition of the quasi-marital property just as though she had been married, just the same. She'll be able to get attorney's fees, assuming that the court finds that she qualifies for attorney's fees because of um, an inequality of the incomes, uh, for example. 
she'll be able to get that as well. So she gets all the benefits that she would be if she were normally married here if she qualifies as a putative spouse, which by the hypothetical it sounds like she is. Now, how this hurts is that dad um, may not qualify for community property qualifications here um, in this case. And if dad, if mom happens to be making uh, the big money and dad wasn't, dad would not get spousal support, though he might need it if he's found to not be putative because he was he had uh, guilty knowledge about the uh, invalidity of the marriage. Um, the lack of being paid a salary would play in uh, as to um, the spousal support consideration, it seems to me, and uh, as to the bona fides of mom's um, activities in helping build the business. Um, this is a very interesting and rather colorful case about how it could play out. And you can see um, how the lawyers could be arguing very strongly about who was putative here. And, of course, it's possible so, that both parties could be. Go ahead. Um, under the, the factual uh, under the facts that I gave you, is there an argument for mom to receive child support? Of course, correct? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Right, absolutely. But, right. And again, now, child support is not dependent on uh, being married. Second question, is: does the mom have an argument that she should receive spousal support? Yes, she does. I think she's got a good argument. Um, it sounds to me like mom was an innocent party, and so she would be the putative spouse. And assuming that there is a need for spousal support, which would usually be shown by um, a, a substantial inequality of the incomes or and an actual need for the, the help. And uh, the other 4320 factors, you know, that are considered by the court uh, in spousal support, assuming mom qualified for that, then the fact that um, this marriage is invalid or is voidable would not stop her, in my opinion, from getting spousal support. All right. And now what about the professional services practice that she allegedly helped build with the father? Is she entitled to any of that as community or quasi-community or quasi-marital property? Absolutely. It seems to me like she would be, assuming that the business was started during the relationship, during this um, quote-unquote marriage. But now... If it was started, if it was dad's business um, before the marriage occurred, say maybe dad was a dentist for 20 years before he married mom, um, if that were the case, then he'd have a, a strong case for saying that, that that his interest in the business was larger than that of the mother. And then we'd get into this Van Camp and Pereira uh, method um, or a hybrid of uh, trying to evaluate what share the community would have. But um, dad would be at a disadvantage here, and mom would be at a great advantage because she would have rights to community property interests in the quasi-marital property, what we would, would have called the community property um, if this had been a valid marriage. Now, I know that you are the property expert so I told you that it was a professional services firm that he owns. Uh, what would be the different ways of 
getting a valuation for that business? Um, a valuation for the business is usually done on uh, the capitalization of excess earnings method. Now, what that means is that you are looking to the business to see whether uh, whether that business is just a job or whether it's a business. Um, that is, whether it has goodwill in it, substantial goodwill. Uh, for example, if, say, uh, the dentist, in this hypo that I'm giving, uh, if that dentist is earning just the same amount during this marriage that he would have been earning if he worked for someone else as an assistant dentist or an associate dentist to someone else, if he earned that same exact amount, uh, then there would be no goodwill value, presumably, in in uh, his business. Um, but if he's earning oh, 40% more than he would if he were working for someone else, uh, then he would have an expectation of, uh, of um, goodwill. And goodwill is defined basically as an expectation that clients will walk through the door, patients will walk through the door, customers will uh, come to you. Uh, just because of the, the good reputation or the, uh, the um, knowledge of the skills of that business. And that goodwill is a key factor in establishing the capitalization of excess earnings. So if there are um, excess earnings made in that business because of the reputation, skill, et cetera, of that business, then a, um, a business appraiser or a CPA or a, a business uh, evaluator could s- set, after paying some expense for his fees or her fees, uh, could set an amount of the value of that um, capitalization of excess earnings. And that would be how one would determine what the value of the business was. And that value now, would be used to, me- to divide it. Now, you mentioned that... Um there was a capitalization of the excess earnings. Yes. There are two other methods, um, and they're not usually used by the courts in valuing, valuing the business. There's the book value method, which is just the the equity in the business according to generally accepted accounting principles, and you, that can be gleaned from the business's balance sheet. And then there's Absolutely. the income method. Are you familiar with the income method? Uh, well, I'm not uh, a great expert in it, but yeah, it's uh, the income method is used sometimes as the investment value of a business, um, and that is, people, uh, the expert could determine uh, how much the uh, the value of the partner or the spouse's interest would be uh, if you were, took the that's if you had the expectation of taking that same value and um, investing it and what a reasonable investor would get from the investment of that. Um, That is is one of the income methods that I'm thinking of. Uh, Is there another one that you're referring to, Vince? No, no, that's usually it's, you know, the net income, looking at the income statement, taking the net income and, and, you know, giving it a multiplier effect for the next, you know, three years, five years, (laughs) ten years, whatever, you know, the court seems to be reasonable. But the more and more I see of these uh, uh, valuations, 
a lot of the forensic accountants are leaning towards, you know, a capitalization method of the excess earnings, uh, usually of the excess earnings. Or I've seen uh, over the years, I've seen also a couple of uh, forensics using a combination of two or three of the different methods. Have you seen that? Um, I've heard of that, um, and that there's that's not um, disallowed by the courts. The, the basic legal authority is uh, any um, rigorous method that the trial court uh, can justify uh, based on the legal authorities. And one very common method that I haven't mentioned yet is the comp- using comparables. And um, for example, CPA businesses and dental businesses are sold all the time on the basis of uh, what their income is compared to the incomes of other dental and CPA businesses. Or you could do a sell a medical practice that way too. But uh, um, um, CPA businesses in, in particular uh, use that comparable um, sales method for selling a business. Very good, very good. Dan, let's go to our next question from our uh, listener. Sure. I got married to my husband in the year of 1994. In 2012, my husband left our home for a cross-country road trip. So that's a uh, 18-year marriage. I have not seen or heard from him since 2013. Can I divorce him for not contacting me over three years? What are my options? So she hasn't heard from her spouse for three years? That's the hypothetical. Yeah, that's the question. Hasn't He hasn't contacted her for over three years. What are her options? Um, and... Uh, the first thing I could mention, I, I really haven't looked into this and I've uh, seen scant reference to it, but there is the possibility that he could be declared uh, deceased after a certain period of time in uh, in old law. I don't know since it's been so uncommon. I, I just haven't had that come up. Um, but maybe that's one possibility. But I'm going to deal with the, the ones that are much more common. And uh, that is, in California, of course, you don't have to have grounds for a divorce uh, other than irreconcilable differences, just that the marriage has fallen apart to the extent it really can't be retrieved or isn't retrievable to uh, to, to the extent you want. And uh, so in California, just if you can prove that you want uh, that there's an irreconcilable difference between you and your spouse, that alone can be grounds for divorce. And that has been held to be so broad that just the fact that one party wants a divorce and the other party doesn't is itself an irreconcilable difference, justifying uh, the grounds for a divorce. So you really don't have to have someone not contacting you for three years. Now, back in before 1974, when the Family Law Act went into place, back in those days, you had to prove fault, substantial fault. Now, that was before I was practicing even. And uh, there are some, uh, um, I'm not positive that there are some states left that do fault, but uh, that was very popular in the old days. 
but now fault has been left out of a divorce as a grounds, although fault is brought back in the back door on many occasions in divorce, uh, in cases where there are domestic violence, temporary restraining orders, child custody cases, um, breach of fiduciary, that is fraud cases in divorce, um, people running off with money or hiding money, uh, fault can be brought back in the back door. Uh, now, I don't want to get derailed here. Uh, the question says, what are my options in this situation? Well, the first thing I'd be concerned about if this case walked in my door is how am I going to serve this guy who's uh, been gone for three years? Assumedly from this question, she doesn't know where he is. Happily, we have a statute that allows for a publication of the summons. So even though you can't serve the person by uh, having a process server walk up and hand him a copy of the summons and the um, petition for divorce. Nonetheless, you can have the summons published in a newspaper of general circulation, uh, and uh, that can serve as a proper service of process on the uh, spouse you're trying to serve. Uh, however, that requires, before you do a publication, it requires a court order allowing it and when you go to the court asking for permission to publish, the court is going to make you prove to the court that you've tried due diligence to locate the, the spouse because we all know that uh, serving a spouse by publication is, in fact, mostly a legal fiction. Nobody reads those um, legal publications um, except sometimes creditors in a bankruptcy might, but... Uh, hardly anybody ever does. So you, the judge knows that um, the, the spouse really isn't going to get actual notice. And, and our system uh, likes due process and likes people to get actu actual uh, meaningful notice. But that's the case where a judge is authorized to order publication serve as a service. And after publication, then, of course, Normally, the 30 days would run, and the, the other spouse, the missing spouse, <clears throat> would not have responded to the papers, and then um, you would go ahead and have uh, ask the court to enter a default against the spouse, and then once the court enters a default, you can go to the court and prove up the default. Now, that means the court would hear your oral testimony, typically, about what it is that you're asking for and why that's fair to, to have the uh, judge order what you're asking for. <clears throat> okay, One very other... good. Let's move to our next question. Okay. Go ahead. Sure. Number four. I recently got divorced in 2013. Since then, my daughter has been attending her same elementary school. This is her last year there, and I have been researching the best middle schools in my area. Her father would like her to attend schools in his city. How can I ensure she is admitted to the school near me? Then let's assume that they have joint legal custody. Joint legal custody. Now, uh, are we assuming that they have joint physical custody as well? Well... It didn't sound like that from what uh, 
the question. Let's assume that they don't have joint yeah, physical yeah. custody. Let's, but that would okay. definitely be a factor in the analysis. Yeah. But let's assume that she doesn't have joint. Right. Well, um, so then we're assuming that she, that uh, the, the father in his city, that he has less say than about 28% uh, timeshare with the, the child. I mean, if you actually compare the time the child is with him versus the time with mom, that he has actually less than about 28%. In that case, it's a standard um, um, custody and child visitation type of arrangement. Well, um, I don't know that you can ensure to mom that the child will be admitted to the school near mom. Um, the, the best way, of course, is to, to ensure that is to encourage mom to spend as much time with the child and have as good a child custody arrangement, as solid a child custody case as possible. Um, because we are going to um, be looking um, at... Um, uh, at a move away possibility if the dad is going to be insisting on the child uh, wanting to attend a school in his city it, it doesn't it makes no practical sense of course for a child to be living in one city and attending school in another city uh, unless they're you know cities right next to each other and even then you'd have problems with the school district so we're probably in an analysis in the analysis that I outlined earlier about move aways and mom, in this hypothetical, mom um, looks like uh, she is the, the primary um, or sole physical custody parent since the daughter's been attending the same elementary school. Now, obviously, the importance to the child is in stability. The child wants to grow up around the same kids, wants to have her classmates promoted to the same middle school, and that um, gives the child standing among her classmates. She feels more comfortable with the, the other children, that kind of thing. Um, so does mom need a court order uh, to ensure that the child is admitted to the school near mom? Well, mom doesn't need a court order. One thing mom could do is she could just go ahead and register the child um, unless there's been a restraining order preventing her from doing that. And if you're representing dad as his attorney, that's one thing you might be very concerned about is jumping into court, filing a motion, um, asking that she not register the child in the middle of school in her area. If dad is seeking a move away, that's one of the first things he might do. File the move away RFO and ask that uh, the child not be registered in mom's school, mom's city. Um, but if dad hasn't done that or has been um, asleep at the switch, mom would just go ahead and register. That's what she would normally do anyway. And um, once the child is registered and starts attending, uh, she's I think she's in a very strong position, and dad really has an uphill fight to try to change that. Um, and for dad to change that, um, he really has to prove that the best interest of the child would be for the child to move to his city to attend school. Uh, that normally doesn't sound like it would be the case in this hypothetical because she's been in that same elementary school in mom's city for a long time. But it could happen. It, uh, if she had had some problems in the elementary school, if her grades were terrible, 
um, maybe some medical problems or some uh, mental health problems, then um, maybe dad would have a shot showing best interest. Daniel, I want you to assume for a second that uh, the child is uh, graduating from sixth grade and going to be entering junior high school uh, at another location. Would the fact that the child wants to stay with her friends at the new junior high school be something that the judge should consider? I personally think it is. Um, because it goes to the stability of the child. Um, but it, obviously it's going to depend on what the other factors are. Um, and other factors, you know, could be the health and uh, the treatment that she's been uh, getting when she's been living with mom. Um, but it is one of the factors. And uh, the continuity of, uh, for example, if she's been involved in sports, uh, in that area, uh, she might want to want to continue in the same area to continue with the same sporting activities or uh, the same uh, training. You know, for example, gymnastics or uh, ballet, or uh, for a young a young man or or a girl surfing, even things like that are factors. Um, one one thing that jumps out at me at this question is that there is that gap there. Uh, you know, if I were representing father, I would certainly be pointing out to the judge, look, she is changing schools. So now is the time for you to be considering changing to my city because this is the least harmful time to change schools. If he, if the father could convince a judge that there is some um, good reason to move, this would be the time for dad to bring his action, maybe his best time. Uh, because the child is changing schools. He, he would have had a weaker case the year before, and he'll have a weaker case once she starts with mom's school. I agree with you there. Well, then let's go to our next question. <clears throat> I divorced my wife earlier this year. At this time, she does not have any custody rights. Every morning, I drop my children off at school. Lately, I've been recognizing my ex-wife's car parked across the street or near the drop-off area. She sometimes approaches my children after they are dropped off. Sometimes, she even brings them lunch. Is this appropriate, or do I need to seek an injunction? What do you think about that, Dad? Well, my first question is, uh, the, the question says that mom does not have any custody rights, but what child visitation rights does she have? If mom has visitation rights, um, then she might be entitled to, to be doing this. Um, if mom has visitation on certain days, say that mom gets a visit on Mondays, and she comes out on Mondays and, and brings the child to lunch. That certainly is well within her rights. So that's an easy answer to that, and I think the question must be asking for a tougher case. So let's assume that something more serious has happened here. Maybe um, uh, a restraining order has been issued against mom 
because mom has done something seriously inappropriate or mom has been violent with dad or, God forbid, the children. And in that case, uh, if mom is deprived of any custody rights and any visitation rights or mom has supervised visitation rights and she's coming over to approach the kids at um, at lunch or when the kids are being picked up or dropped off, that is inappropriate. And in that case, mom um, should be prevented from doing that by an injunction if that is in the opinion of, or, or given the situation, if that is harmful. So um, one would have to decide what is the best interest of the child in this situation in evaluating uh, moms doing that. You know, if it's just a friendly thing and, and mom really wasn't restrained from the kids, then it, maybe it's not a problem. Uh, or if mom has been helping at school as a volunteer or something, even during dad's custody time, that may be okay. Unless there was some uh, domestic violence temporary restraining order or, for example, if uh, the juvenile court had um, taken jurisdiction by virtue of a dependency action, in that situation, it is quite possible that mom has no right to be out there at all. Um, Vince, um, I'm sure you have thoughts on this one, too. Well, you know, I would have, I would have give the analysis. It would all depend on what mom's visitation is, right? Does she have the type of visitation um, where she can visit freely uh, or does she have the type of visitation that's somehow uh, restricted? So it would, in my analysis, it would depend, you know, mainly on those types of situations. And it didn't sound like the caller, excuse me, that the person who emailed us uh, gave us any restrictions. But assuming that there were restrictions, there could be a problem with the child seeing the mom, uh, you know, during school. You know, Dan, I think well, we have time well, for one, one, one more question. Okay. Over the years, I was married to my husband, uh, and he became very wealthy. While we were married, he started a successful business and has bought numerous properties for passive income. He now wants to divorce me, and I want to understand what I have in rights, uh, what I have rights to as his wife. Is his business and homes considered community property? His name is on some of the deeds, and both of our names are on the majority of them. Shall I begin this, Vince? The the question uh, suggests, the question states that he started a successful business during the marriage. So we don't have to dwell on what we've considered on other matters where you're apportioning uh, the value of the business between separate property uh, owned by the husband before marriage and uh, community property uh, earned during the marriage. In this case, it sounds like the entire business was started during the marriage, and thus it's entirely community property. We have a presumption in California that anything acquired during marriage is, first of all, presumed to be community property. Now, it's easy to dispel that presumption in cases where property has uh, been 
acquired during the marriage by inheritance or gift, and then it could be separate property, uh, presumption of separate property taking over. But here, this successful business is is determined to be community property by the timing of its acquisition. It goes on that he has bought several or numerous properties uh, for income. Now, if those properties were bought from the income of the business, those properties would be presumed to be community property or 50-50 property. Uh, <clears throat> deeds to these homes, some of the deeds are in both names and some deeds are in his name alone. Now, just because they're in his name alone doesn't mean if they were acquired by uh, from earnings during marriage, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're 100% his. They could be, if you can trace to the acquisition, they could be found to be community property despite that title. And um, there's a question, for example, um, uh, as to whether valid transmutation has been hap has happened as to some of these deeds. Uh, if they're held in, uh, in joint titles and if you had um, facts that proved that they actually were the husband's property from before, then, of course, we'd have a, a um, presumption that um, that undue influence occurred if the husband, I'm sorry, if the wife gets an unfair advantage from that deed being in both names. And we would be looking at uh, husband, I'm sorry, wife proving, rather, that, um, that that was done fairly. And, of course, in transmutations, you're looking at complying with uh, Family Code 852, which requires a written express intention um, of a change in ownership or character of the property. But if all these properties are community property, as they look like they are from the question, then still uh, the, uh, the parties might have varying interests in the properties by virtue of what's called Family Code Section 2640, and that is that a party uh, who had separate property contribution into a, a joint uh, title property could get back off the top in the latter sale could get back off the top the amount that that party contributed into the property. On the other hand, um, if um, the property in the husband's name alone uh, has been has a mortgage, a trust deed that has been paid off or being, being paid down during the marriage, then uh, the, the party could be claiming community property interests in that property by virtue of what's called the Moore Marsden Doctrine. So um, if you can, you could track into the property rights by those, those are two of the more common methods of tracking in and separating community versus separate interests in properties. Uh, Vince, I'm, I'm uh, going long on this. Do you have thoughts of yourself? Um, I, I just had a few. I, I really agree with you, um, with your analysis. It's a very good analysis, Dan. Um, for this evening, we are running out of time. We have approximately 15 seconds left in the show. So, Dan, I want to thank you again for joining me this. My oh. pleasure, Dan. And you. we'll see every we'll see everyone next week on the radio.